testing one, two, three. Okay, come on now. Good, good. Aim pod. Oh, another um, interesting thing. Um, I don't know if I told you that um, after the uh, podcast from um, Age of Truth with um, Lucas Alexander, uh, when they did the interview with uh, Dean Henderson, it's Henderson, right? I got in touch with uh, Lucas and told him I wanted to do a uh, narration for book on tape for Dean on his book for free. And the reason I said for free was because uh, I need to get my feet wet. So he's my guinea pig. And plus I need to um, find out some of the tricks to the trade. So, And I need to read his book first, hopefully. Um... It might take a while now that I'm thinking about it. But anyway, I haven't heard back from him. I sent an email to him saying that I'll do it for free. If he doesn't like my voice, uh, that's okay. I'm not going to get hurt because basically, um, um, if he would be a really good resume you know, that I did his book for him and to get more so that I could do more books on tape. Okie dokie then. What I have here is something that's really interesting. Um, when I was growing up, I don't know how old I was. I really have no idea how old I was. I think I was like... I want to say in my 20s could have been older but um, you guys probably know of the uh, Zodiac Killer and that he left a note and they finally cracked the code after all these years so let's check it out Used to be. Good grief. So many commercials. 
A Melbourne mathematician and two fellow cryptologists have been officially recognised by the FBI for solving a 50-year-old cryptic message written by the Zodiac serial killer. At least five people were killed by the Zodiac killer in the 1960s, but the killer's identity is not known. Dr Samuel Blake is that mathematician. He joins us now from Melbourne. Dr Blake, welcome to ABC News. This is an extraordinary discovery. Congratulations. How does it feel to be involved in unravelling this code and what does it say? Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, so uh, it was it was such a long shot. We we tried several hundred thousand incorrect ways of solving the cipher, and just by chance we happened to sort of stumble upon a fragment of, of how it could be solved. And using that fragment, we reverse engineered the the entire solution and uh, got the the entire message out from the zodiac. Wow. So what was that all-important message that took so much work to find? So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not an expert on, on what the Zodiac had to say. I, I managed to help to, to get that message out. Um, it doesn't reveal his identity. It doesn't give a lot of clues to his identity. I think more what it does is the, the method that he was able to use to create that, uh, that cipher um, may help uh, track down who he is. And when you say we, obviously you weren't alone in this process. You worked with at least two other people uh, at this point of, because it's more than 50 years uh, since that message was first published. So just take us through how you worked together um, and who was involved with with doing this. Yeah, so David Ranchak is from the United States and he has been working on trying to solve this cipher in his spare time for 15 years. Uh, which is a Herculean effort. Uh, I, I saw some of the videos that he put online promoting analysis that he'd done of this cipher, and I thought they were excellent. And so I, I reached out to him in, I think, about March of this year, and it was sort of a way of getting through the, the Melbourne COVID lockdown uh, was to, to play around with this in my spare time. Amazing. And was there any special technology that uh, helped to finally, I mean, you talked about reverse engineering um, when you finally found a couple of uh, pieces of the puzzle. Yeah, so uh, what you can see on the screen now is a, is a program called AZ Decrypt, which is written by a guy from Belgium called Jal van Eyckie, and that was a central piece of technology that we used. Uh, and then I used the Spartan supercomputer at Melbourne University uh, to run some of our candidate uh, reading directions through the cipher in order to work out which was the right direction to look through the cipher. And so it was a, it was a large problem of trial and error. And um, with this, I mean, what was it that made the code so difficult to break? It was a combination of two things. So uh, it was a homophonic substitution cipher. So uh, letters in the, uh, the text that the Zodiac was encrypting is replaced with multiple symbols. But then the, the reading direction that we're normally used to is, you know, left to right, top to bottom on a, on a page. Uh, whereas what the Zodiac did in this, in this cipher it. was to, to write it out down the diagonals up, of, the, of the page. So he went uh, one, one row down, two columns across, one row down, two columns across in order to write it out. And trying to stumble across that correct enumeration was, uh, was 
one of the main difficulties one row down, one and across. as you point out oh, wow. um, this is just a step towards hopefully solving the case it's still an active case so so how do you feel about being involved in um, something like this and uh, are you working on any further clues which might help people finally solve the identity yeah, I think the chances that we were going to be in, uh, at all involved in this was so small because the chances of solving this after 50 years was next to next to zero. And so being able to play a role in this is fantastic. Um, you know, I hope this decryption may lead to, uh, you know, better narrowing down who this person is. Um, but I guess we'll have to wait and see. In regards to... The other two ciphers that he sent, where we're looking at those to see if there's ways in which we can we can uh, use the work that we've done on the 340 cipher to to solve those. Um, but none of that is clear at this stage. Well, you've already made a huge inroad. It's an extraordinary effort, as I said earlier. Thank you, Dr. Sam Black, there in Melbourne. So much for your time. Thank you. Okay, I thought maybe that she was going to refresh her memory on uh, him, the Zodiac Killer. But um, So it was 50 years ago, so I was about maybe 12, something like that. Um, but I was kind of into that kind of thing, you know. And... Um, Wow, that's amazing. He's gotten away with it for 50 years. And they finally... I, I just thought that would be something that you guys would be interested in. It was something that um, was surprising to see when it popped up. Thanks for listening. Oh, you know what? I'm going to make it a little bit longer. I'm going to put more than one together because, you know, um, trying to um, update these is a pain <laughs> it is I'm just going to say it like it is um so I'll do another one here I had some other one that was kind of okay here's one about the Pope Huh. Killers and then the Pope. Huh. What did the Pope know about the Holocaust? Interesting. Let's see. Hey everybody, stop clicking around. I am in the woods uh, with some water going in the background near my house. And the next. Pope Francis has set out to herald a new era for the Catholic Church. An era of transparency. Now he has opened the Vatican archives and given access to Pius XII's files, one of the most controversial pontiffs in history. Pius XII remained silent as millions of Jews were killed by the Nazi regime. Because of his silence, some called him Hitler's Pope. For others, Pius XII was a saint who secretly saved the lives of thousands of Jews. Finally, the Vatican files about Pius XII are fully accessible and can shed new light on his silence during the Holocaust. The time for truth has come.
Rome, 2nd of March, 2020. On this day, the documents from the papacy of Pius XII were declassified. files from 1939 to 1958, kept secret in the Vatican for decades, are finally accessible to researchers and historians. German historian Hubert Wolf was one of the first to look at the documents. The first thing that everyone naturally associates with the Vatican's secret archives is, of course, Dan Brown's novel, some kind of hermetically sealed glass cubes in which archivists regulate the oxygen supply from outside. Absolute nonsense. The Vatican archive is an archive like any other. Although we have actually been working regularly in the Vatican archives for 20 years now, it was of course something special, because one simply has a whole range of questions. What did the Pope know about the mass murder of Jews? When? Who informed him? Did he believe what he was told? Pope Francis had announced this decision one year earlier. He just said he was going to release the information. Andrea Tornielli is director of the Vatican News Outlet and one of the men closest to the Holy Father. According to him, this decision reveals Francis's commitment to a transparent church. The church does not fear the truth. Of course, Pope Francis holds firm to this principle. Let us also consider the great scandal, the struggle against abuse. He has insisted that there be full transparency. His decision to open the archives can be seen in this light. Since his election, Pope Francis's mission has been to restore credibility to an institution suffering from sexual and financial scandals. Pope Francis's choice was to open the doors of the church. There should be no more room for secrecy in the Vatican. Even inconvenient truths have to be confronted in public. Shouldn't the way you charge your device be just as good as the device itself? I mean, don't you think the chargers today are pretty sad and crappy, with messy wires everywhere, and they also break all the time? But what's crazy is that your phone actually charges wirelessly. That's wirelessly. You don't even need the wires. Hi, I'm Hudson, and my dad is Seymour Segnet, the inventor of MagFast, a whole family of next-generation wireless magnetic chargers. 
I feel really excited now because this new product video just came in from our awesome animator, Philip. It showcases MagFast Extreme, a charger so powerful, it can even jumpstart. You know what? Check it out. And if you love it, I'll show you how you can get one free when we start to ship. MagFast Extreme is, quite simply, a new class of power bank, utterly uncompromising in every way. was big news, as Pius XII is still a matter of heated discussion between Catholics and Jews across the world. Pope Francis' decision to open the so-called secret files of Pope Pius XII is certainly an encouraging sign. Later, one can revisit the question of a possible beatification and then jointly recognize, yes, this was a man who really did do all that he could, or that he was a pope who perhaps could have done more, done things differently, should have acted, or could have acted differently. Pius XII's reputation started to become controversial in the 1960s, when a theater play, the deputy exposed the Pope's silence during the Shoah, the Holocaust. As international protests broke out, the then Pope, Paul VI, decided to make thousands of documents from the Second World War period public. For many historians, though, this collection was incomplete. Pius XII has remained a mystery. Pius XII was born in 1876 under the name Eugenio Pacelli. At the age of 23, he entered the priesthood. After rising swiftly in the Curia, in 1917, Pacelli became the Pope's ambassador in Munich. Church historian Stefan Samerski studied the exchange of letters between the Vatican also known as the Holy See, and its representatives in Germany. Many of these letters were written by the future Pius XII. When Pacelli came to Bavaria, he obviously came to a Catholic state and was welcomed very joyfully and warmly. However, the political situation was, at the end of 1918, beginning of 1919, exactly what Pacelli did not want. In 1918, the First World War came to an end. Defeated, the German Empire collapsed, and amid the turmoil, the socialists tried to seize power. The situation was particularly tense in Munich, where Pacelli lived. A socialist republic was proclaimed. He was directly attacked by representatives of the Socialist Republic in Munich. They came to the Vatican Embassy and wanted to confiscate his car. He knew about communism from his studies. He knew that communism is not compatible with Catholic teaching. But above all, he knew communism from this experience in Munich. They put a gun to my head, my life was in danger, and they created total chaos. In 1925, Pacelli was transferred to Berlin 
the capital, he negotiated a contract on relations between state and church with the German government, the Reichskonkordat. Das politische System war plötzlich ein ganz neues. Suddenly it was a whole new political system. What happened a monarchy now became a republic. And in this context, the relationship between church and state had to be completely reorganized. This concerned holiday regulations, universities, training of priests. It touched all areas that had to be regulated between church and state. Father Gumpel is probably one of the few living witnesses who has personal memories of Pacelli's time in Germany. I personally met the future Pope Pius XII for the first time when I was very young. Well, when I was six or seven years old. He exchanged a few words with me. Later, I got to know him and I noticed that an aura of spirituality emanated from him that I had never seen with other people like him. I dealt with other popes too. Private audiences with Paul VI, John Paul II and John XXIII and so on. They were all great men and important personalities, good people, but I must honestly say that nobody made such an impression on me as Pius XII. For many years, Father Gumpel advocated for the beatification of Pius XII. In the course of this process, he had a unique opportunity to look at the secret documents in the Vatican Archive. In those days, during the Second World War, thousands of letters arrived at the Vatican. They were answered whenever possible. He was not someone who made easy choices. Before making a decision, he always wanted to study a problem from all sides so as not to make a mistake. So he was careful, and that was right. That's good. The process of making Pius XII a saint was started in 1965. All that is missing to finalize it is proof of a miraculous healing, as required by the regulations. Pope Francis has announced that the process is on hold. La causa de Pio Io mi sono informato e ancora non, non c'è nessun miracolo. E, mentre non ci siano i miracoli non può andare avanti, no? E ferma lì, no? An even bigger obstacle to Pius XII's beatification is the controversy over his relationship with the Nazi regime. This began in the 1930s. Back then, Pacelli was appointed state secretary, the most powerful man in the Vatican after the Pope. At the same time, Germany was witnessing the rise of the National Socialist Party and its leader, Adolf Hitler. At first, Eugenio Pacelli knew nothing about Hitler. He even wrote to his colleague, the Vatican ambassador in Vienna. He asked him for information about Uncerto Hitler, a certain Hitler. He also never met Hitler in person. 
back then, he did not see Hitler as a great danger, nicht als die große Gefahr. In January 1933, Hitler became German Chancellor. Just one month later, after the burning of the Reichstag, the persecution of German Jews began. In April, a Jewish woman named Edith Stein wrote a letter to the Pope that historians found in the Vatican archives years ago. Edith Stein? Edith Stein, a Jewish woman with an advanced philosophical education, turned to the Pope with an urgent request. She asked him to speak out publicly and loudly against the persecution of the Jews. We should keep in mind that Edith Stein was Jewish and she had converted to Catholicism. We now know from Pacelli's notes that this letter from Edith Stein was actually presented to the Pope. All of us who are faithful children of the church and who look at the conditions in Germany with open eyes fear the worst for the reputation of the church if this silence lasts much longer. And then there was a reply, which is actually embarrassing. Pacelli wrote to the Archabbot, who had presented the letter to the Holy Father. He had seen it and offered his encouragement and gave the papal blessing. But to her request, no mention. A historian at the Ecole Francaise in Rome is researching the relationship between Jews and Catholics at that time. Nina Valbuski. Pacelli's main concern was the protection of the Catholics and the Catholic Church in a Nazi Germany. For the Vatican, Jewish problems were not a priority. Today, Pope Francis is received with open arms by the Jewish community. As his predecessors had done before him, Francis calls the Jewish people older brothers. The Bishop of Erfurt was appointed by the German Conference of Bishops to improve relationships between Catholics and Jews. According to him, in the 1930s, many in the Catholic clergy were not immune to anti-Semitism. 
We have to assume that in the 30s, most Catholics were guided by the principle that Jews did not recognize the Messiah. The allegation that they were responsible for Jesus' death on the cross was also common. And we know that there were many sermons that repeated this. Determined to gain the majority in Parliament, Hitler tried to secure the support of the Catholics. The national regering sees in the beiden christlichen Konfessionen wichtigste Faktoren der Erhaltung unseres Volkstums. Shortly afterwards, Hitler offered the Vatican the agreement on which Pacelli had been working since the 1920s. The Concordat. The Vatican accepted. Pacelli himself signed the pact with the future Führer. Of course, that was a huge triumph for Hitler because his regime was not trusted by the rest of the world. And the first international treaty Hitler ever made was a treaty with the Holy See. So if the ultimate moral authority, the Holy See, makes a treaty with this regime, then other countries can legitimately do it as well. Four years earlier, in 1929, the Vatican had already signed a similar agreement with fascist Italy and its dictator, Benito Mussolini, with the blessing of a large part of the local clergy. Diplomatic relations between the Holy See and fascist regimes are the field of expertise of Professor Matteo Luigi Napolitano. The majority of the Italian clergy supported the fascist regime. Many priests had fought for their country in their youth and felt like patriotic priests. Also, at that time, Many in the Catholic clergy saw fascism as a lesser evil in comparison to the real enemy, communism. An atheist ideology that promised to overthrow the social system which the church had been representing for centuries. They realized quite quickly how the situation in Soviet Russia escalated. Persecutions of the clergy occurred in that area. Not only the Orthodox Church was persecuted. Priests were arrested, churches were closed, the faithful were harassed, and church property was confiscated. This also happened to the Catholic Church. However, as Hitler gained more control over the German population, he also began to target the church. How did, how did the Pope not understand what was going on? How did he not know? Hitler grew up in a Catholic environment in Austria and paid church taxes until he died. In fact, he even took inspiration from Catholicism for Nazi symbols and rituals. 
He was fascinated by this hierarchical structure of the Catholic Church. At the top, the Pope. On the other side, the Führer is at the top. Well, he had a certain fascination with the Church, but in fact he had nothing at all to do with it. The Church was his opponent. Over the years, the Catholic bishops of Germany increasingly rejected Nazi policies. There were protests. There was a clear rejection of National Socialism. This was essentially a rejection of racism, of euthanasia, and also of the attempt to build a new Nazi religion. The Bishop of Münster, Clemens von Galen, was particularly important in this regard because he protested very strongly against euthanasia, so strongly that the National Socialists ended this policy. Von Galen and other German bishops denounced violations of the Concordate and asked the Vatican for an official protest. Catholic schools were no longer allowed. They were actually closed, even though it was a breach of the Concordate. There was no more pastoral care in prisons. Only military chaplaincy continued to exist. Agreements were simply suspended, or they were not implemented. And there was no point. It was not effective to invoke the terms of the Concordate. That did not achieve anything. Pope Pius XI wrote a letter to the German faithful, an encyclical that was read in all German churches on Palm Sunday in 1937. The encyclical was originally called with great concern to make it clear that the Holy See was concerned about the situation. This persecution of the Catholic Church in Germany. This title was then personally changed by Pacelli, who made it a bit sharper, and he chose a stronger adjective, burning. So the title began with burning concern, to emphasize once again how seriously the Holy See was taking the situation in Germany. The Nazis were outraged because they only found out about it after this text was read out from all the pulpits in all the German churches at 9 o'clock in the morning. But this encyclical had no lasting effect. I cannot say that this was a change in the tactics of the struggle. I would say it was like a flash in the pan. It didn't go any further. Pius XI actually wrote an encyclical to condemn the anti-Semitic laws enacted by Hitler and Mussolini. But this letter was never published, and it is unclear if Pacelli stopped the publication. A mystery that can be solved only once the research in the Vatican archives is completed. In February 1939, Pius XI died and Pacelli was elected to St. Peter's throne.
himself the name of Pius XII, in homage to his predecessor. When Pacelli was elected Pope, Mussolini was very concerned. His son-in-law, Galeazzo Ciano, gave us evidence of this. Germany's reaction is also interesting and no less disturbing. From Germany, ICE called silence. They made it clear, you are not our Pope. We are not necessarily happy that you have become Pope. Pius XII had been elected Pope only six months before Hitler ordered the invasion of Poland. The Second World War broke out. The Pope, as head of the Vatican, a microstate without an army, hardly had the means to really oppose Hitler. The Vatican could use diplomacy and charity. For biographers of Pius XII, the Second World War period remains a mystery. Many questions are still unanswered. First, when did the Pope find out about the extermination of the Jews? For one week, Professor Wolf and his team were able to search the archives for an answer to this question. Then the corona crisis broke out and the research had to be interrupted. But in that first week, they found documents that offer a revealing insight. In the summer of 1942, US President Roosevelt received a letter from a Jewish agency containing information on the mass murder of Jews in Poland and Ukraine. The liquidation of the Warsaw Ghetto is underway without any distinction. All Jews are led away from the ghetto in groups and shot. Their bodies are used to make fat and their bones to produce fertilizer. However, the mass executions do not take place in Warsaw itself, but in camps specially prepared for this purpose. A White House envoy reached out to the Vatican, asking for the Pope's evaluation. He wanted to know if the Vatican had already received similar information and if Pius XII would agree to take part in a joint protest. The Holy See actually had two pieces of information. The first piece of information came from Count Malverzi, who had been traveling in Ukraine. When he returned, he told Montini, the future Pope Paul VI, about the horrors he had seen there, what the Germans were doing to the Jews. And they had a second and more important report from a unified Catholic Archbishop, a Metropolitan from Lviv, who confirmed exactly what the Jewish organization said. So the Vatican could actually have answered, yes, we can confirm that the report is reliable. But they didn't. They said yes. We have also heard these things, but we are not able to verify the truth of these statements. Why did the Vatican give such an answer? The missing piece of the puzzle is perhaps in a recently discovered document, a note from a close advisor to the Pope, Monsignor Angelo Dallacqua. 
Delacroix schreibt nämlich auf. Delacroix wrote, the American request is crucial. If the information is correct, then comes a terrible sentence. Can you believe Jews? They always exaggerate. Followed by the recommendation, let's remain politically cautious, because if we speak out, we take sides, and we should be non-partisan. This note helps us to understand why Pius XII remained silent and did not take part in the Allies' joint protest against the mass murder of Jews. Dieses Dokument gibt auf die Frage, was der Papst getan hat und warum er es getan hat. Of course, this document alone does not give a reliable answer to the question of what the Pope did and why he did it. Because we need a thorough review of all the material in order to be able to give an overall judgment. Anything else would not be credible. But the fact that after one week, we have already found such a key piece of information means that we have to take a closer look at all the sources. Bitte schaut euch die ganzen Quellen genau an. Dieses Dokument macht aber eine bestimmte Sache plausibler. This document, however, makes one element more plausible. It shows us that the Pope was informed about the true extent of the Holocaust in autumn 1942. It shows us that he knew of this American request to confirm these figures to him. He did not do so, although he had his own sources. Because these sources were not considered reliable by the Pope and the Cardinal Secretary of State. Probably because Delacqua made them look ludicrous. Weil Delacqua sie lächerlich gemacht hat. Pius only broke his silence at the Christmas Mass in 1942. On that occasion, he condemned all racial persecutions without any specific reference to Jews. Le quali senza per una colpa propria, talora solo per ragioni di nazionalità o di stirpe, sono destinate alla morte o ad un progressivo deferimento. Pius XII mentioned those who suffer, those who are persecuted, and those who suffered in war because of their nationality, religion, or origin. He used the Italian term stirpe which does not mean race, but describes a line of descent. In other words, he spoke broadly, without referring to Jews in particular. Since the beginning of the war, the Pope had received letters from Jews in various countries, all of whom pleaded for help. They all described the same atrocities. We humbly ask you, that you might be so good as to ask His Holiness to appeal to the Catholic clergy in Slovakia to use its influence to stop the terrible deportations immediately. We know exactly how we will die. Crammed in under barbed wire, mass graves we dig ourselves, children thrown in alive, the adults stripped naked, battered with a club, and into the grave, a few bullets fired as an afterthought. There are an incredible number. 
I'd say thousands of letters from Jewish people to the Pope. These are often petitions, just petitions, that say, we are in this or that terrible situation, can you help us to get out? In other words, the Pope did not just see the Holocaust in abstract numbers, but also in very precise individual stories. After one week, we have only found these letters of petition, but we do not yet know how the Holy See reacted. In some cases, we have found the petition and the refusal, and there were no further developments. In other cases, the Holy See tried to help and did help. This is a very large subject and perhaps the most important in the whole archive. In 1943, the war reached the gates of the Vatican. When Rome was heavily bombed by the Allies, Pius XII left the Vatican to pray among the ruins. Shortly after, Mussolini's regime collapsed and Hitler's troops entered Italy. Rome, too, fell under Nazi occupation. And on the 16th of October 1943, after a raid in the Jewish ghetto, 1,024 Roman Jews were deported to Auschwitz. Only 16 of them came back. finally sheds new light on what Pius XII did to protect the Jews and what he did not do. Traditionally, the Pope has always protected the Roman Jews. But during the deportation on October the 16th, 1943, the Pope did not utter a word of protest. De cette déportation des Juifs de Rome, hein, qui advient donc le 16 octobre 1943, Pacelli tried to act on different levels. To start with, he reached out to the German Reich's ambassador to the Holy See. Herr Weizsäcker, to tell him that he stood up for the Jews and that Weizsäcker should do everything possible to prevent the Jews in Rome from being persecuted in the domain of the Pope. The second thing was that he asked to check which monasteries, which churches, which church institutions were structurally capable of offering shelter to the Jews so they could effectively hide in there. That happened in papal buildings, as well as in many religious orders. The third thing did not take place. There was no loud public protest. protest. It is important to remember that there are about 10,000 Jews in Rome. 
20% of them were placed in Vatican institutions, for example in the Pope's summer residence, in Castle Gandolfo. Viene ospitato in strutture vaticane, per strutture vaticane parlo di Castel Gandolfo, questo ci dicono. This is what the Vatican documents tell us. Come tante altre istituzioni. According to one of these documents, stored in the Yad Vashem Memorial in Israel, 4,715 Jews found shelter in the Vatican and other Catholic institutes during the German occupation of Rome. For the chief rabbi of Rome, Riccardo Disegni, the Pope could have done more. He could have saved all the Roman Jews from being deported. There was a kind of silent agreement that the Germans would not carry out such an operation again. But what had already happened was ignored. That is unfortunately the reality. And thousands of innocent people were taken to Auschwitz. There are many ways for a Pope to make himself heard. If he had said that the Jews should not be touched, that would have been enough to cause a diplomatic crisis. We also need to take into account the position that person held. If a person is the moral head of a community, that person must behave accordingly. Was this moral behavior? That is the question we need to find an answer to. Other church representatives spoke out. For example, the Archbishop of Toulouse, Monsignor Saliège, who publicly denounced the deportations in the summer of 1942, causing the Vichy government to slow them down considerably. So there is one example. When a clergyman spoke out in public and explicitly denounced anti-Semitism and the deportations, it had an impact in that specific case. Caught in a dilemma between silence and denunciation, Pius opted for diplomacy. He wanted to act in silence. This attitude of Pius XII may be due to what had happened in the Netherlands in 1942. There, the bishop's protest had led to a greater number of deportations. Among the victims was the nun Edith Stein, the converted Jewish woman who had appealed to the Pope in vain in 1933. In 1998, she was made a saint by John Paul II.
in das Konzentrationslager nach Auschwitz gebracht, wo sie mit ihnen in den Gaskammern starb. Heute gedenken wir ihren Adam in großer Erfurt. Okay, so <clears throat> actually, I did not know that information, and it's very upsetting to hear it. So many people reached out to the Pope lamenting what was going on. There's no way that he could not know what was happening and he didn't do anything. Nobody did anything. Uh. We have so many examples of um, our history just failing, you know, failed humanities of history.
Thank you for watching. Bye-bye.